What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast with special guest Paul Sierra at Paul Sierra on both Twitter and Common Stock. So be sure to give him a follow. We get into his two favorite industries, both the pet and fitness industry, why he thinks the supermarket industry is a good inflation hedge, and some advice to new investors. But as always, this is strictly for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as financial advice. So please, please, please do your own research for any stocks or companies that were mentioned in this podcast are not taken as investment advice uh, and should not sway you in any way, shape, or form to invest in these companies. Um, We disclose in here the companies that we hold when we talk about them. Uh, So please do not take that as a swaying and how to invest, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. All right, now let's get into it. All right, we are live with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast with special guest Paul Sierra at uh, at Paul Sierra, both on Twitter and Common Stock, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yep. So, uh, yeah, Paul, thanks for coming out. How are you doing today? Yeah, no, thank you. I'm doing good. Uh, it's a Monday, but hopefully the rest of the week goes by pretty quickly. Yeah, so we're recording this on Monday, April 4th. We'll release it a little later in the week. But uh, yeah, so um, Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know we kind of linked up through Common Stock. Uh, so for those of you that are listening, Common Stock is uh, more so, I guess, like a, just like a financial Twitter, FinTwit um, platform allows you to, you know, divulge some of your holdings if you'd like and, and write some longer form uh, breakdowns of like stocks and investments and things like that. Um, so it's a great platform if you're looking for, uh, you know, just like financial data and, and things like that, um, people's breakdowns and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, Paul, how did you find Common Stock and how did they find you? And uh, yeah, I guess get into your whole investing journey and background and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, to kind of, answer a few of your questions. So, I mean, I started off my career uh, in investment banking, actually. So um, I was an investment banker at Merrill Lynch um, 2018 is when I started in the consumer goods and retail group. So basically covering all the companies that you, me, and every other consumer can either walk into a store and like physically buy or like order from online. That's basically what the coverage was. And then that was also the year that the cannabis industry was like going live, right? That's when like Tilray and everybody else like went public, um, the New York Stock Exchange, et cetera. Um, so that was also my area of focus as well. Um, and then fast forward, you know, I, I did, I'm still doing it actually, I had two couple things. So um, I transitioned from a traditional finance role over to um, doing strategy for a healthcare tech company um, in which I'm also currently doing that again. Um, so like my main job is, doing um, strategy for one of those DTC startups, or actually this case it's B2B. And then on the side, which is the Cedar Grove Capital, is I actually manage like friends and family's money um, via a long, short uh, capacity, um, specifically geared, again, towards the consumer and retail with like a little bit of tech, since like nowadays, it's kind of hard to not be uh, having some type of tech-enabled aspect of your business. Um, and then also the cannabis side as well. Um, but like, to be honest with you, I, um, I, I never really used Twitter. I, I got a Twitter like in 2014. So you actually go to my profile since I've been on for like 
almost a decade now, but I never used it. I just created it and I was like, all right, well, this is dumb. And then, you know, like once I started to kind of want to advertise myself, right. Um, and like what I was doing, I took to Twitter and noticed that like people were, some people uh, were like sharing like thoughtful advice and like opinions. And like, you know, I got to like, you know, see what other people were thinking. And from there, just for me posting things and interacting with people, um, I was able to meet some, some of the team members of common stock. And then they reached out to me like, Hey, like, you know, I see that you have your own like sub stack that you're writing for. Um, and that, uh, you know, you're pretty active, you know, and just in the general, I was like, did you actually want to talk about common stock? Which is cool thing, blah, blah, blah. Hopped on a call. Um, I was like, okay, this, it doesn't hurt me to have it. Right. Um, so I joined and then from there, it's, uh, like you mentioned before, it's, it's kind of like a FinTwit thing, but with like different kind of aspects. So it's nice to have exposure to both. Um, but that's kind of how I, at least career-wise, how I started and what I'm doing. And then also um, like how I interact with um, Twitter and then how I got introduced to Common Stock. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I'm all kind of along the same lines with you on Twitter. I, I've had mine for quite a long time, but, uh, now you see my dog is, yeah, I mean, I had mine for quite a long time as well. And I kind of just used it to follow more sports and stuff, maybe a little bit of news, things like that. And then, um, you know, within the past couple of years, as I got more into investing, I just kind of, I don't know, I just found things and there's, it's Twitter's a weird thing where there's a lot of different, I guess, sectors and areas of people that you otherwise not really notice or find that, uh, you know, they're just all kind of into the same thing. So, I mean, whether it's, you know, investing or even I, I got into the weeds of like baseball card trading cards of uh, Twitter. So, I mean, like, you know, like, like I was saying, like you were saying, there's a bunch of different things and different aspects and yeah, common stocks are great. Um, a great platform and that was kind of the same way that they found me as well as through Twitter and, and my Substack and everything like that. So um so yeah, so it sounds like you've been investing for, you know, about since 2018 or that's when your career started. Um do you did you do any like I guess personal investing prior to that, like maybe when you were going through school or anything like that? Or did you just kind of start when you were um, you know, first getting your start into investment banking? Oh yeah, no, I mean I've been, I've been introduced to the, to the stock market ever since 07. Um, Cause like that was like, like my dad was a very active investor in his own, right. He was, he wasn't a finance person, but um, that's how I got introduced. You know, like when you, you saw like, Oh my God, the world's collapsing. Why is the world collapsing? You know, like the whole, the whole economy is falling apart. Uh, so I got introduced, I guess, when I was like reading like the New York Times in the mornings, and you'd see like the Dow dropped 777 points. And you're like, I don't know what this means, but it doesn't look good. You know, <laughs> so like, it just got from there and there. I like, got so interested because like from a young age, like, my father kind of ingrained and, and my sister and I like, hey, if you like take a dollar that you earn and you can like invest it, it can become like two dollars later on. And I'm like, by doing nothing? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, oh my God, like, I was like so like crazy with this concept. And um uh, so I've been knowledgeable since then. I invested in college because, um, like, my uh, my university had an investment fund. Um, and so it was actually a student-run investment fund that was, quote-unquote, value-focused. Um, we kind of stretched the truth of that, to be honest with you. Because, um, again, you're, like, you're, like, you're in college, right? Like, value can mean many things. 
Um, but then when, I, when, you, when you get to Wall Street, though, there's you're you're kind of I wouldn't say forbidden. It's just that it's next to impossible to trade or invest on your own accounts because like you have like so much um, like material non-public information like MNPI, so that um, you could in theory be like insider trading like basically every minute of the day. Um, so they 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 don't want you doing that. So they kind of like hey, if you have accounts, close them. The only thing you're allowed to invest in are like ETFs, right? Because they're so diversified that you know you, you can't you can't really manipulate anything because of that. Um, or you just pay an outside financial advisor to do it for you. Um, I didn't really care at that point, so I was like, you know what, just put it in my four hundred one k. Let it let it let us do its thing. Vanguard, Vanguard will do it for me. Um, uh, but then, and then ever since I was able to like when I left investment banking, that's been like my whole. Um, like I wasn't, uh, there's no restrictions anymore, right? There's no more red tape. So I'm like, great. I waited my my 90 day grace period after I left. And I was like, all right, cool. Fund the account. Let's go. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Well, yeah, there you go. That That's awesome. So, I mean, I, that's pretty interesting that you started getting into it with, uh, you know, right in 2007 and, you know, of course, the impending 2008 crash. Do you kind of think like, you know, you first learning about investing in all that during that time, does that kind of shape your mindset now and uh, kind of, uh, I guess, help you ride some of the waves at least early on and, uh, you know, I guess, shape your mindset as far as like dips and and, uh, volatility goes? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, you're constantly learning, right? And everybody says, and if there's anybody, even like the old timers, right, like those the guys who have been investing for like 25, 30 plus years, are like they they don't know everything, right? Because um, like those are, those are the same guys who are like in the 90s, who are like, you know, Amazon's a bubble and you know what, it's never going to be anything. And then now you fast forward another 20 years and you're like, that was probably the dumbest thing you, you could have admitted, right? Um, so yeah, we're, I, I'm always constantly learning things. So like while, while investment banking <laughs> definitely closed the gap of a learning curve very, very quickly, um, like 2020 was definitely a learning experience for many reasons. 2021 also, um, just so many things were happening. Um, but no, I'm always learning. The best thing, the, the one leg up, I think I would say I have, which is kind of why, like, you know, some people have given me their money, is that the like, consumer retail is great because of the fact that, like, it's so relatable to us, right? Like, I can go into CVS. CBS is a publicly traded company. I can see how it's doing. I can go buy like toothpaste, P and G, right? You know, like that's the people who sell uh, sell toothpaste. Um, uh, gyms, pet companies, um, lawn care, like anything. Like I can, I can, I can. The, the level of due diligence that I can do. Not that I have a leg up in due diligence, but just saying, like, I can do so well with it because I can just go and do it myself, right? I can't. I'm not going to be able to go to a Twitter and be like, Hey, how's Twitter doing? Like, no, I can only, I can only look at what it gives me. Um, so with, with each kind of like passing of time, um, you kind of, you, you, you hone in on your skills and you, and you understand better about like why things work the way they worked or why didn't things work the, the way they didn't work. Um, like how wrong were you? How right were you? And like, what were the reasons for each? Um, and for me, it's just so much easier with, the industry that I cover or the, the focus that I cover um, mainly because of it. It's so intuitive, right? Like you can teach it, you can teach it to anybody. Um, and which is still surprising me how some, how, how a lot of people can still get it wrong, <laughs> even though it's, it's pretty intuitive. 
Um, but yeah, no, it's always a learning experience. And like, that's kind of like why I've settled on those particular uh, industries and why I put on sticking to them. Nice. So uh, I guess I, that brings you to my next question. So it seems like you kind of uh, look at companies um, based on consumer goods, maybe what you would buy or where you walk around in or you observe. Um, how do you find uh, specific companies that you like to invest in? And uh, how do you go about analyzing them? Yeah, so good question. Um, what are the, I have a lot of books, but that's only some of, some of them, but um, the rest are in my room. So Peter Lynch, I know it's talked about, you know, investor, Magellan Fund um, back in the, was it 70s and 80s? Uh, I, I resonated with him so well in one of his books, um, One Up on Wall Street, which I highly recommend to anybody ever who wants to learn about investing. And his, his whole premise was basically like taking, taking down an idea into its core simple root and then being able to see like, oh, hey, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? And like, why? Um, so with a lot of the examples that he gave, I mean, granted, they were they were back in the 70s and 80s, so things were a lot different than they were now. But he would be going to like a motel inn and stay at a motel inn and like see firsthand, like, this place is killing it. Like, let's go. Um, he would be buying into like toy companies and stuff like that because like his kids would, would ask him for toys. And he's like, this, these things are so hard to get because of they're so high in demand, but like the stock's not moving, like what's going on? And then you would, you know, invest. Um, so it's, um, it's stuff like that, that kind of helped. Um, and sorry, I have to have my tangent. What was the actually original question? I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was just, uh, yeah. How do you go about finding companies? Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is like, because it interacts in my daily life, like, so I have a dog, right? One of the, in a different aspect, like last year, I invested in the pet space, right? I went, I, in the beginning, I actually ended up going long. I still am. I went long Petco. Um, they just went public in February of last year. Maybe it was January. I forget. Anyway, they went public. I was, I was shopping at Petco. I was buying things um, for my dog from there, you know, and like um, being able to see it firsthand. But then also I, was, I, I made this short call for Chewy saying like, I also buy, bought things at Chewy and like Chewy's a great company, but I think it's not worth that. But I think it's not worth that much. Um, so because I was able to kind of have the exposure to my dog, I got introduced to um, the pet industry and I was able to see it firsthand. Because a lot of the ideas that I come up with are thematic in nature. So they have like themes, um, the pet space being one of them. I've invested in um uh, the fitness space, right? Because like if, in a post COVID world, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was, I needed to get out of my apartment. I needed to work out, like not in my apartment anymore. Um, other spaces like vertical farming, like that's one that like many people don't really know about, but it's like going to be so big and also important for the future. It's, it, it's inevitable at this point. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the investments that we do have some type of theme behind it. Um, and then whether that's on the long side or the short side, um, uh, there, there isn't a reason why they wouldn't fit into like one of those buckets, right? So it kind of starts with a theme. And then from there, it's like, all right, well, based on that theme, who's doing well or who's doing not that well? Why? Um, what, like, what's, the, what's, the, uh, what's the potential here? Like, is there a clear runway? Like, do they have um, white space potential in like domestic or international markets that they're not really exploiting right now? Can they 
you know, monetize consumers more than they currently have or more than, you know, like analysts or investors currently think they can. Like it, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, but from top down approach, it always starts with the theme and then it goes more and more granular to like, all right, who's killing it? Who's not? All right. Awesome. So, yeah, so, so a few things in there. So, yeah, you, you seem like you kind of, I guess, split companies into buckets based on, you know, various themes, like you said, uh, pets, fitness seem like a, a couple that you like, and as well as like the vertical farming. Um, so, yeah, uh, let, let's get into the pets. Um, so, yeah, you're, you mentioned a couple companies. You mentioned uh, Petco, and I see like on, on Common Stock, you can divulge some of your holdings as well. Um, so I see that you also hold Bark for BarkBox, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, one. <laughs> yeah. so let, let's get into those two. So, uh, I mean, I feel like during COVID, a lot of people, not myself, I had a dog prior, but um, a lot of people kind of went through the whole, you know, sitting at home, being lonely, uh, you know, maybe needing a companion or something like that. So uh, I think there was a big rise in pet adoptions. I'm not sure the exact numbers on it, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that there was a lot of uh, adoptions of pets. And I know friends and family that, that adopted pets as well. So do you think that, I guess, the COVID pandemic kind of helped a lot of these pet companies? And do you think that that, uh, you know, meteoric rise, so to speak, in uh, pet adoption is going to help these companies in the long term or do you think it'll kind of slow down um once i guess things start uh i mean i guess they already are kind of opening up and everything like that but officially uh completely open yeah that's the thing so like yes and no um so like yes i mean like my dog is a covid puppy right um so it helped like many other industries like pet is not the only one Many other industries benefited from COVID, like from a pull forward, right? So like the years that they would have had in growth, whether it be like 2022 and beyond, in a normal capacity, got pulled forward into 2020 and 2021, just because of the fact that, again, like you said, people were lonely, they needed a dog. I always wanted a dog. I was in the, I was in the spot to get a dog. So I'm like, great, like I can take care of it, no problem. Um, so that's what actually, so if you look at the, the, the Chewy chart for when it, from like pre-pandemic to then peak 2020, I mean, the stock went up like, what was it? Like 200, 300%, I can't remember off the top of my head. It was like incredible. Uh, I think it I think it peaked at a price of like $120 a share. I think it was trading at like maybe 30 something or 40 something pre-pandemic. Um, if, you want, if you want to call like the trough of March, 2020, I mean, it was like a 600% return. It was like, there's something ridiculous, right? Um, but that's the thing though, and this is what screwed over a lot of people in 2020, in the beginning of 2021, because you know, you got so used to this meteoric rise like, that people are paying up for each each dollar in earnings. They were making earnings, which truly wasn't. Um, but the potential to make earnings was there uh, because they're just growing incredibly fast. So people forgot that, hey, if you're paying up for growth and the growth is not sustainable anymore, the valuation is going to come down. Like no matter how you cut it, it's just going to come down. So we're still, people aren't going to pay up anymore. Um, so should we collapsed in 2020, collapsed, but, but it basically got cut in half in 2021 um, from when I shorted it, at least. I shorted it at like 85 bucks a share. So it, was, it wasn't at the top, but it was it was up there, right? It was, it was at like 30% off the highs, uh, all-time high. Um, so I shorted it. I was like, hey, 
it's a great company. It's just that it's slowing down. It's not going to be growing as fast as you guys think it is. And at the same time, that's when Petco went public and people were scrutinizing it as well. Because they're like, you know what? It's not sustainable, blah, 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 blah. But the main difference was Chewy is an online first company, right? So they're, they're DTC, e-commerce, um, pets, pet food and supplies. Whereas Petco, if anyone is familiar, they have their physical store footprint. Like they're a, they're a retail first, then online second. And historically, they've been doing pretty crappy on the online department. Um, but they're, they were having so many initiatives to essentially encompass an overall pet ecosystem so that they could leverage the retail footprint that they already had as not only where you and I can go walk in and purchase goods, but then for the online consumer, they can then use those retail stores as fulfillment centers for the online orders. Um, so they were actually in theory, utilizing what some might label as like a liability, having to pay for this, all this real estate. And in fact, they're just double, there's, there's, there's two use cases, fulfillment and walk-ins. Um, and on top of that, they're like, you know what, let's go one step further. And then they went, they went further than what Chewy could. They had like, you know what, let's do veterinary services. Let's do grooming. Let's do um, um, boarding and training and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, they wanted to be a one-stop shop for a, um, a pet owner, which if you compare it to Chewy, Chewy can't, Chewy can't do that. He only send you things. Like what else is he going to do? Um, so that's when I came out. I, I went First, I went long um, pet cubs. Like this, this is a no-brainer. And then I went short Chewy. And I'm like, same space, different kind of business models. And um, ever since then, I mean, like, again, Chewy's, <laughs> Chewy's got slammed. Um, and, I, and I got out of it. But then also for Petco, like so much, not that I'm a fan of what analysts have to say, but it is nice to say like when they come out with um, their own views, like, yeah, like Petco is like one of the highest conviction stocks that they have because of the transformation that they're going through. Right. Um, so to answer your question, like I said, it's like, it's like, yes, it did help, but then no, because the consequences of what investors paid um, for the pull forward wasn't able to be held um, going into 2021 and then 2022. Uh, so if you got out the top, great. If you held on to it, I am sorry for you. <laughs> yeah. So I was just looking at the uh, Chewy chart and yeah, you're right. It got to the top just under 120 yeah. at the bottom, you know, right before 2020 when, you know, March, 2020, it was like just above $20 and now it's sitting at $45 and, you know, 82 cents. So, um, yeah, definitely a, a big meteoric rise and a, a big fall, although it is, you know, higher than it was at, uh, you know, March 2020 time. Still, uh, still not that, that great of a return when, when it comes down to, to, to where its top was. Yeah, so, not even if you both, even in the top 50% of its all time high, it's still a, a terrible return if you bought any in any of that range. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, so the way I kind of view Petco, uh, yeah, they've been doing a lot of these services you know, for quite a long time. It's almost like uh, like the Walmart for pets. I don't even know how, how else to describe it. But yeah, like you're saying, one stop shop, you can essentially do anything and everything for your pet there. Um, I know when my family personally first got a dog, um, I want to say that that was in maybe 2000 seven or eight or maybe even a little bit before that but we took our dog to petco for training 
uh, initially. So, I mean, they've been doing these things a lot of, uh, for a very long time. It's a very trusted brand. Um, and yeah, you, like you said, you know, they have the retail footprint. Um, so how do you think that they, uh, you know, can, can like, like you mentioned, it seems like they're almost like a retail in-person store first and online second. Um, do you think that the, I guess, the future of pets uh, services is, is more so online? Um, and do you think, um, you know, I guess their retail and their brand name is big enough to, um, you know, I guess, figure out the online s- stuff second and, uh, you know, keep improving that part of their business? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know when the inflection point is between like, oh, wait, we're going to be a majority online or not. I think, yes, for pet food and supplies and stuff like that, um, it, it's definitely going to be an online focus for lots of pet owners. Um, but one thing about pets, though, and like you can't forget about it, it's like, it's not, it's like one thing if you're going to be ordering like shoes from like Nike online, like, yeah, I can do that online. I actually never have to go to the store, right? I, even if I want to return them, the slap on the return label and I can just send it back. Whereas a pet, like, no, sometimes pet need not not sometimes like they just do they do need like health services they do need veterinary services they do need to get groomed they do need to get their nails trimmed they do need to get their teeth brushed they need to um go in for training they might need to go in for walks blah 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 blah. so like there's one facet that you can hone in on of what can i get online and there's the other part that's like what is also necessary that i can't get online which is the whole reasoning behind their store footprint because you have all these other ancillary companies, ancillary companies, sorry about that, ancillary companies that um, can provide other dog services. But like, it's like, why can't Petco just do that on its own? Like, it can, and it will, and it is. Um, so that's kind of why um, there's just so much runway for them. Because if they can create that stickiness with the customer, me, you, then they can squeeze out more dollars per customer um, just by doing their own business of each, uh, each particular aspect. And that's, 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 that's what gets it to the next level, right? Because every single consumer or retail company is just like, how can we make more money? Well, you get them to come back more into the same, same ecosystem. And that's exactly why, whether it's online or whether it's in person, there's going to be some aspect where a pet owner is going to walk in and be like, yeah, I'll get this. Or if I don't want to walk in, I'll order it and I'll be there in a, in a few days. Done. All right. So then on the flip side, uh, another one of your holdings is BarkBox, which is strictly online. So how do you think that they, I guess, differentiate differentiate themselves from Chewy? And uh, why do you think uh, a BarkBox is going to be successful? Yeah, so I was, I still am, I'm not going to say I was, I still am bullish on, on BarkBox. Uh, unfortunately, it was a spec. So I think it would, it really became collateral damage as part of the whole de-spacking in 2021, um, which is unfortunate because the company's like the company's killing it. Uh, it's 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 actually meeting its targets that it, it set out when it was going to be a, a public company and it's back. Uh, they're again trying to fill out a similar ecosystem um, for pet owners, but in a different kind of sense, right? Because they send out like care packages, right? And so I used to get. I used to get BarkBox for my dog um, for um, toys. I, I didn't really need the food because I got the, she needs to get a spe- special food um, or treats. So I got it for toys. So it, it set it apart from a Chewy or a Petco, whereas like 
Chewy was different from Petco because Chewy only did um, food and supplies and like that was it. Ship it to your door, no problem. But they didn't do it in a in a in a way that BarkBox was doing. So BarkBox took it one niche further down and was, hey, we're gonna send you curated care packages of toys and treats every single month uh, for your dog to basically get like a nice little gift in the mail to play with. And I cannot explain to you how happy I was to get those boxes in the mail. Like when she was driving me crazy, I'm like, only two more days until this bark box comes and she can play with the new toys and like leave me alone, you know? Um, so I'm bullish on it because of the fact that like, it's something different that no, that none of them were really doing. I mean, I think like Petco had like pup box, but it was, it wasn't anywhere near to the degree that BarkBox was growing. Um, so uh, when it comes to curated care packages, uh, I think pet owners, especially myself, really like benefit from that um, because it's, it's a pain to kind of go out and like just buy toys when you know they've had hundreds and thousands, I think maybe millions of data points about like what dogs liked from the toys that they got, and, like what kind of like preferences they had, um, so that I never have to worry about it. I just get it in the box. Here's one, give her like one every week and then she's good. Um, which also benefits too, is that they also have this other program, which is called the Super Chewer. So what the name, what the name alludes to is it's, they're hard toys, right? So it's not going to be like some stuffed animal that your dog's going to get and destroy in like 2.5 seconds. It's going to be, it's going to take longer, right? So for my dog, she's very big on destroying her toys, but with that box and those curated um, toys that came in there, it took her a little bit longer, which is great for me. So I'm like shell out more money for it. Um, so that's kind of how it was different. And when it comes to me being bullish on it, again, they're building out um, like dental services for, or dental products, I'm sorry, for the company. So like they can send you, which I also buy, um, the like uh, teeth cleaning, like toothbrush, toothpaste, or those little like those sticks, they're almost like greenies, but they're not, um, to clean your dog's teeth. They're also going to be um, focusing on uh, dog home. <laughs> so like uh, like dog or human furniture, the equivalent to like dogs. So it's, you know, like beds and all that kind of stuff. And then the other one was uh, Bark Eats when it comes to um, prepackaged food for your dog. So like kibble um, that you can order and that will come in a care package as well on a, on a regular monthly basis or however, however long you set it. Uh, and you feed your dog that way. So they have, like, they have things in the pipeline to grow it. Um, that all three are between Petco, BarkBox, and Chewy are just different in their own kind of ways. Um, but that's why I was bullish on Petco for the reasons I stated before. And then BarkBox because they're like the person for packages. Like that's 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 their bread and butter is at-home packages. Yeah, I think the subscription model of BarkBox too helps a lot, right? So, you know, you kind of keep getting those things and it's been very popularized in almost every industry, it seems like, you know, whether it's, uh, I guess Netflix kind of started the subscription model, or at least it's the first that can come to my mind. And it seems like in every industry now, there's some large company that's, you know, just bringing in that monthly revenue with however many people. So, um you know, definitely good to have uh, the consistent revenue coming in and, and monthly. Yeah, because I mean, like you want to be able to monetize as much as you possibly can and having a service is a lot more predictable when you're forecasting out your financials. <laughs> That's fine. You're forecasting your financials instead of like having to like worry about like when's the next sale going to come through. It's like, oh, if I have 
a couple hundred thousand customers ordering on a monthly basis, like that's pretty easy to determine like what my revenue is going to be, you know, it's predictable. If it's something like one thing I liked about Barbox as well is that when it comes to your subscriptions, which I'm sure everybody does, is that the, the longer you buy, so like, right, like there's some companies that say like, hey, if you buy on a monthly plan, it's this, but if you actually buy the full year up front, you get a discount, they would do that too. So I could buy it on a, on a one month, a three month, a six and like a 12, and I would get a discount on accordingly how long I would buy it. And I'm like, okay, well, I have my dog for the next 10 years. So is there a package for that? You know, <laughs> it's something, it's something like that. Like it helps me and it helps them, right? They get the, they get the capital up front. Um, and then they can be able to like, either like what, like borrow against it, right. As like, um, receivables or whatever and invest in the core business or, um, just be able to record it, um, uh, traditional accounting. Right. So, um, that's benefit to me, benefit to them. And it also looks good in financials. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now let's move on to another industry. You kind of brought it up a little bit earlier, the fitness industry. Uh, so just looking at your holdings here, you have uh, Exponential Fitness. Uh, so for those that don't know, because I wasn't super familiar with it before, but it's essentially a fitness company and it has a bunch of uh, various subsidiaries like Club Pilates, Peer Bar, Cycle Bar, Stretch Lab, Row House. So it's a lot of uh, these uh, little, I guess, exercise fitness boutiques that offers a lot of classes and studios. Uh, so tell me a little bit why you like this company and, uh, yeah. And overall, I guess, why are you bullish on the fitness space? I know you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier about, you know, wanting to get out of your house and everything like that. And I can definitely relate. Um, so yeah, give me your, uh, breakdown on the fitness industry and exponential. Yeah. So I, in the beginning of the year, I was actually, I invested in exponential fitness. So the, um, the boutique fitness studio. And then also there was F45 fitness. Um, F45 fitness is its own like hit strength training franchise. It's, it's just one brand. Um, Mark Wahlberg is a part owner in it. He invested in it uh, a couple of years ago. They went public um, last year, just like Exponential did. Um, I actually knew of Exponential back from my investment banking days because I think they were looking to go public when I was still a banker there, except they just didn't work out um, for whatever reason. I honestly can't remember. Uh, so I was familiar was familiar with it, but I invested in both because I'm like, all right, easy easy play here, right? Post post COVID, we want to get out of their house, we want to get back into working out. Um, so like long studios and gyms, short digital fitness, which. Peloton obviously was was one of the beneficiaries and then utter you know disasters of that. Um, so the reason why I wanted to look in the fitness industry is again post COVID, but it wasn't it wasn't like it's not black and white. It's not either either doing it in digital or you're either doing it in person. It's it's quite literally going to be a hybrid model. It kind of was before the pandemic, but the pandemic really put into people's heads like hey like I don't actually have to go to the gym. Um, to work out right even like my building we have, a, we have a gym in my building and we have access to this one digital company where like i can i can do yoga i can do hit training just from the the, the tv right and that's fine that works for me sometimes other times i need to go lift something heavy <laughs> um so the reason why i ended up selling um f45 fitness because i wanted to focus on one i don't have too much exposure to one industry aside from pets but different story um was that F45 Fitness is its own, its own brand, its own business. 
its own franchise. It's just, that's it. It's just one thing. So while they're still, while they were still doing well, the reason why I liked Exponential a little bit more, which made me dive into it more, was that they have, uh, officially now, they have 10 brands under their parent company. So you can um, go to get um, workout in Pilates, working out in yoga, working out in strength training, working out in HIIT, working out in like all these other, you know, fitness concepts, but it all rolls up into one parent company. So I could have exposure through diversification of many different fitness models while still only holding the one name. All right. It's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to be a one-to-one risk reward. It's like, Hey, if one suffers, like I'll have the other nine to kind of hold me up or pick me up, you know? Um, so it eliminated the risk of fitness concepts being a fad because of the fact that like, if, if, unless yoga is going somewhere tomorrow, like there's going to be other things that are going to pop up from it, right? Like yoga morphed into hot yoga and goat yoga and all this other weird stuff that I don't understand why, but whatever people pay for it. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why I like the exponential fitness. It's an asset like model, meaning like they franchise out all of their, um, their license, their licenses for their brands. They don't actually own any. I think they actually own it. I think that back. They actually own like a few, I think, because they took it back from franchisees to like kind of like fix them up and then sell them again. But that's not their business model. That's like a, a one-off thing. Um, so asset life, so not capital intensive. Um, their whole post-COVID return to to in-person studios. I felt there would be a beneficiary out of that. Um, one thing that many people um, I think to really account properly for was that the pandemic, um, like it shut down a lot of gyms, shut down a lot of um, uh, chains. So the point where like now, now when you analyze the supply of the fitness space, it's contracted since COVID because a lot of a lot of companies are bankrupt. So now when you think about the transition, if you if if my theory was right, my thesis is right, is that when people are going to go back into person, but there's not enough supply, then the people who are left are, are going to stand to gain from that, right? Because there's going to be like an increased participation in visitation rates. Um, AUVs can potentially keep going back up because they're paying up. They can, they can charge more essentially, right? They don't have to like do steep discounts or cuts, et cetera. Um, so there was that part. Um, I liked how um, the company was able to parse out their in-person studios. So like you and me can go do hit training one day. But then I can also, if I didn't want to, through the same service, I have to pay a little bit, I have to pay something different, but it's fine. Um, I can do like live uh, on-demand classes at home, or I could just use the digital workouts from their, you know, um, workout li- a library. Um, and then they also took it one step further because they knew that the hybrid model is going to be very important. They created this thing called the X-Pass, Exponential Pass which allowed, depending on what you paid for, what tier you paid for, I could um, take a few classes of HIT one day and then switch it up and then go to do Pilates another day and then switch it up and then go do yoga another day. I didn't have to just sign up for that one brand. I could go do whatever I want to do amongst all the brands through one um, like kind of tiered membership, right? Um, so that was something that was really nice. And then the, the best thing that I love, which I, I it's... I try to tell my other, so when I talk to other PMs, I'm like, just please, just please look at this stock. Like, just, I already did the work. Just look at it um, domestically. Uh, so when it comes to the CNR space, when you talk about retail, like white space, like what is out there that has not been claimed yet is still really, really big for them. 
Um, they have they just came out with their their 2021 earnings not too long ago. They have just over um, 2,000 studios in the U.S., which might sound like a lot, but it's really not because um, for their own data, and if you, you can discount it any way you want, it's still a lot. They believe that just in North America, they can get 8,000 studios in North America alone, right? So if you want to take it at face value, that's 4x left in their growth for just studios in North America, right? That's a, that's a credible runway. That's ridiculous, right? And then if you want to discount that still, whatever, 3x, that's still huge. Like You're not going to tell me that McDonald's can 3x anymore. It's not going to happen. Um, when it comes to international, basically virtually untouched, right? They just did a recent acquisition that boosted their uh, international store footprint from, I think, 15 to 150 just from one acquisition. Um, so it's it's super untouched. So they're, they're planning on rolling out additional studios in Australia, I think it's like New Zealand, Japan, Korea. Um, uh, I forget the other ones. There's so, there's so many of them now. Like some, some of the Middle East, some are in, um, in Europe. Um, so the international white space is untouched. So if you alone, that's that's worth another business in and of itself, right? And uh, one thing that I love about management, and management is typically is owned by um, this company called was um, Snapchat, Snap Snapdragon um, Capital Partners, and they, they're they're a fitness PE firm, consumer based PE firm. So like they're operators, right? Um, so they understand that the risk of a a fitness concept, right? Like think about um, CrossFit, like not that it's out of fad, but like this things can come and go at a moment's notice, right? Um, they understand that they need to keep, they don't need to, it's just, it's just good business to do M&A transactions of other potentially new and upcoming fitness concepts, roll it up into the overall umbrella. You get the operating leverage of the corporate team, right? So the SG&A, could in theory grow pretty minimally, but if you're doing more creative acquisitions and fitness concepts, you know, your system, your total system-wide sales keeps growing. Everything keeps expanding while your corporate SG&A, right? Your operating leverage is, is relatively, relatively flat in theory, right? If you're talking about as, as a percent of sales um, or improving just from sure, pure scale. So the operating metrics look great, right? They're actually planning on being net income profitable next year. They're already adjusted even to profitable already. Um, so like it's basically like everything I was looking at, I'm like, this is great. This is great. This is great. And, and I kept going on. I'm like, how does nobody know about this? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I published my research in the very beginning of February. Um, even though I've, I've owned it since before then. Um, and, uh, it has done very well since then. Uh, I, I basically ended up buying very close to the dip and like after today's news, um, of a secondary offering, like the, the price took a hit just from like a, sh a sheer number of shares in the beginning of the market, not from the company, just from the, the stakeholders. I'm like, great, I will buy more because I didn't buy enough earlier on. Um, so yes, I'm very bullish on exponential fitness and the fitness space in general. Yeah, I mean, that's great. A lot of great points there. And uh, it reminds me, of, there, there's something here in Tampa where I'm at, it's called the Class Pass. And it's sort of yeah. like the X Pass. Literally. Yeah, except it's all under the same umbrella brand, which, you know, obviously is very nice for an investor and for, you know, anybody uh, like you're saying. And the thing I like about 
about uh you know exponential fitness that, that you're getting into is that it's it's a class based and it they have you know like you said diversified classes and I think as far as you know the the fitness industry goes I think the classes are something that you know really help people socialize and and stay and keep going you know once you once you go to a few classes you maybe you make some friends talk after class and then it's just you know you get a lot of the same people keep going and, and get into the habits of that. Um, whereas, you know, maybe like a planet fitness or something like that, you get a lot of people where it'll be a little bit more cyclical in my opinion. Um, it's just slightly different, right? Cause even like, like, I, like, I don't do cardio. I don't like cardio. I do like, I do weightlifting, right? I'm not like big I, This is better for my mental health and like what I'm looking to achieve. So even if I went to a gym, I liked going to the gym because like in my own head, I'd be looking at the guy next to me lifting. And I'm like, all right, he's got like 50 pounds on that. Like, can I do 50? Can I do more than 50? Like, how do I work myself up to get to more than what he is? It's almost like an internal competition, right? Um, and you get that social, you get that socialization sometimes because like you do chat with somebody like, hey man, like I see you deadlifting. Um, do you mind like helping me out with my form? You mean pointer the little ball. You, you, there is some level of an interaction. Like I say, it's a lot, but it, it exists. When it comes to these studios, some of them are very like kind of class oriented, right? Um, so they'll be like, hey, like partner up with somebody or they'll be like, um, I know like Orange Theory, which is another fitness concept, not, not owned by Exponential. They, they basically host um, on the TVs throughout your class, like who's basically burning the most calories or who's earning the most points, right? It's, it's like, a, it's a comp- like you like that drive that in-person can give you that, that digital can't really. I mean, that cult Peloton owners will fight me to the death on that one, but it's, it, it, it's different, right? It's like same, same, but different. Yeah, exactly. So you brought it up already, Peloton. So I am very be- bearish on Peloton as well. Um, so I want to tell me, I, I want you to tell me what, what your thoughts on it, and uh, I guess why you've kind of, I guess, had somewhat of a negative uh, to- tone towards it. Well, because at the time, like everybody kept telling me, like, "Nah, you're wrong, you're wrong." I'm like, I might be. I honestly might be because the stock just keeps going up, and I can't explain why. Um, so like a lot of my finance friends. I mean, you're talking about a bike, right? Like if I'm spending $3,000 on a bike, I better be getting my money's worth, right? Like I was paying for the gym. When I was thinking of paying for the gym, like in New York City, um, again, like I'm very, I'm very easy. I don't need something intense. Like I had my friends paying for Equinox at 250 bucks a month, where I'm playing, paying for um, Blink Fitness at 30 bucks a month. Like, yeah, it gets the job done. I don't need to spend so much money. To, I don't need that the bougie Kiehl's lotion in my bathroom. Like, I don't care, dude. But when it came to Peloton, like they were all signing up hand over fist to purchase a Peloton, you know, and they're dropping the three thousand dollars on it. I thought they couldn't afford it, but because you know they work in finance, they make money. But it's like they they were willing to wait the six months before they even got the bike, but they're willing to spend the money. Um, so I'm like, okay, let's think about this. If we're talking about a three thousand dollar piece of hardware equipment, there is not that many people in the United States that are that. A, can afford a $3,000 piece of equipment, and B, even if they can, that doesn't necessarily mean they want to, right? But again, like Peloton was like, so proving me wrong on that. There people were still buying and buying and buying. But then what I noticed, and this is, and this is what really turned, was that um, if you looked at the resale market for Pelotons, as fast, and from your perspective, as fast as the sales were going up, the resale market was also going up. So the people were like, the people who kind of had like buyer's remorse after a while were like, 
I just spent three thousand dollars on a piece of hardware and I got like use out of it, but now I'm like, I kind of don't want this anymore. It takes up space in my apartment or my home, you know, whatever. Um, the expression came around that it's like it's it's better used as a clothes rack than me getting into fitness anymore, right? Because like during um the pandemic, everyone's like, Yeah, I'm gonna go change my body, you know, I'm gonna eat right, I'm gonna like get bangs and dye my hair, whatever. Um after a while, they're like, you know what? Like, I kind of don't want to work out four or five times a day on this Peloton. Um, so the resale market started going up. And that's when I started, became, I became louder. I was like, I don't think there's something, there's something wrong here. I don't know if it's right. Cause again, I was wrong as it was going up, but I'm like, there's something, there's something there. And eventually, you know, that's when it peaked in February of 2021. Um, it hit a ridiculous, what was it like 150 bucks a share or something like that? And like, it was trading like $45 billion, but it delivered like 2 billion in sales. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense for a hardware company. I don't care what kind of digital like subscription service multiple you want to give me. There's no, there's no way that bridges. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and then eventually like it started slowing down, right? They're like, oh wait, the supply chain, the supply chain's fixed. Oh wait, now the supply chain, now, now we actually have too much of a supply chain surplus going on because we we were anticipating the same level of growth that fell off a cliff. You know, like once the vaccines came out and things started opening, I can't even tell you how quickly I ran to the gym with my mask and like my, my vaccination card. Like, yes, I'm good, let me in. Like I, I wanted to go back. And I'm, I'm so did a lot of other people, right? So now you're supporting you're supporting foundation foundation for a long thesis of, you know, people are going to be switching to in home doesn't hold up anymore because it, it was a factor of people just couldn't go in person. And that's kind of why they resorted to a Peloton. But then as soon as things started opening up, um, people shifted and it shifted very, very quickly. And, you know, like fast forward to February of this year, you know, that's when that presentation got leaked of like the the um the CEO was his name Jim Jim Farley. I always get the confused between the Ford CEO and the Peloton CEO. Um, where he's like, you know what, we're putting pause on the manufacturer of new equipment because we had too much. And I'm like, boom, like guillotine over the neck, like that's it, finished. Um, and like the stock cratered like after that, I think like 20 or 30 percent just on just on that move. Um, and then it was funny because once it started dipping so low, I think to the the early 20s, that's when the Amazon um, buyout rumor came out. And I immediately took to Twitter because I'm like, this makes zero sense. Like, And I, I listed out why. And I have never had a tweet go viral besides that one. That one blew up. And there was everybody from both sides like, you don't know what you're talking about. This makes total sense, blah, blah, blah. If anything, they're getting a deal at this point. And you have other people like, no, this thing is not worth that. And um, they're not bought out yet. So, I mean, like, hey, so, so far, that's not, it's not a reality. Um, but they were basically like, yeah, like, sorry, hybrid is the new approach. Peloton is, is not a hybrid. It's an in-home. It's a purely digital in-home connected fitness or not connected fitness um, player. So like, while there is, while it's still worth something, it's just not going to be worth like the $40 billion that it was a year ago. Um, and that's, you know, how like, if you, if you literally put a chart together between Peloton and Exponential Fitness and F45 and Planet Fit, all the in-person, it was basically an inversion at a point where all the in-person names went up and all the digital names went down. So like, what was it? Um, Beachbody, Beachbody cratered. Beach, oh my 
God, that was like someone just got hit with an atom bomb. Um, Peloton got hit. Uh, all those guys, like, an inversion happened. And it was, it was really interesting to see because I'm like, finally, like it, it broke. Like, I, I wasn't wrong. It was this early, you know, which depending on who you ask is the same thing. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's my ramble on, on Peloton. But would I buy one? No. Would I even buy a resale one? No. Would other people do it? Maybe. I don't know. But it's not, it's not going to see the growth that it did um, two years ago. Not anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I def- I agree with you 100% on there. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's hardware that whether it's the treadmill or the stationary bike or whatever, it's hardware with an iPad on it when the content on it's limited to what Peloton has. So yeah. the, the only reason I thought maybe Amazon would make sense is like you could put on Amazon Prime on there and get some, you know, just music or videos or whatever. Uh, so when you're riding the bike, you don't necessarily have to do a workout. But I think that's where Peloton, you know, like you said, is, is limited because the the hardware is is so expensive, and then you have to pay monthly for it. And then you know, and obviously when it first came out too, there was such a high demand that they couldn't keep up essentially. And they benefited from the at home environment in COVID. And now that that's over, just like you're saying, people are more. Uh, you know, more desire for that in-person interaction and going to the gym and, and being in person there too. And I think, you know, as the trend of working remote kind of stays around, which, which it seems it kind of, kind of is like the gym, at least for me, where I'm at right now is, you know, I'm, I'm working from home. So my social aspect of the day is going to the gym and doing one of these classes. So I, for one, am not going to want a Peloton or something like that because I don't want to stay at home and work out. I want to go, you know, interact with people or go somewhere and work out. And I think having that taken away from a lot of people uh, just has made that, you know, more more sticky of a footprint now uh, opposed to before maybe the pre COVID days where maybe people were like, Oh, you know, I'll work out at home or I don't necessarily have to do it. I think, you know, the lockdown kind of uh, like you said, accelerated the in-person growth when, when, uh, when everything started to open up. So. Yeah, and like one last point to that. Sorry, it's like because all that was true, right? It's, it's, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, but one thing about what you, what you mentioned as well, it's like, yeah, it's an iPad on a bike. So I'm like, I, I didn't have any hard numbers on this, so it's, it's, it was pure assumption. Um, for the people that could afford a Peloton bike, I would bet you a good amount of money that the people who could afford a Peloton bike also had a Prime membership. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, thinking about like an investment banker, why would I be paying for the subscribers that I already have on Prime to, to pay for them on Peloton? I could I could just convert them, right? They're, they're already a part of the Prime service. I can keep them on Prime and I can like build my own bike. It's not the first time Amazon's built something on their own, right? And then market it as like an Amazon subsidiary or whatever. So that was, that was my argument because I'm like, you've got this company who briefly became profitable during the pandemic and then cratered again, where Amazon could easily, any, anybody honestly, could easily replicate it without any issues. Or I can invest in like exponential fitness where like they're growing EBITDA margins by like over 1500 basis points in a year. Like, are you kidding me? Like what companies can you, can you say like expanding, expanding profitable margins by over 1500 basis points? You can't, right? So it's like, number one, Peloton was a dud. Uh, and then two, that buyout rumor, it was very much a rumor, right? It was, it's just Amazon's corporate development team analyzing an opportunity that got leaked 
that pumped up the stock a little bit for a very brief amount of time because it's already retraced back to what it was before that. Um, and that was it. That's it. It was done. The conversation was over. We moved on. And that was that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now let's get into one last industry. Uh, you told me you don't really like the supermarket industry. Uh, tell me why you don't like it, because I feel like, you know, uh, we've kind of talked about you know, how different industries during this time have either benefited positively or negatively uh, from the COVID pandemic. And I feel like the supermarket industry is definitely one that has benefited because a lot of more people are maybe, you know, like I said, working from home, having more time to cook at home and, and things like that. Um, so why aren't you a big fan of the supermarket industry? So here's the thing. Um, I should have specified. So I don't like supermarkets because they're just, there's just no sex appeal to it, right? It's like, okay, I go into the store and I buy my pasta or buy my meats or whatever, get it and go. That's why I don't like it. It's very, it's very slow growth, right? Um, so it, it's, it, it's, it's not going to move the needle as much as I, my other names could, right? So that's why I don't like it. Um, but on the flip side of this, this is the most important part, especially now. So if anyone that's listening, pay attention, is that when it comes to high inflationary environments or AKA potentially us going into a recession, not saying that we are, but that's a very real possibility. Um, supermarkets tend to do very well. I tend to be very big outperformers. And I actually wrote a thread on this on my Twitter account on how um, supermarkets, uh, number one, like, if I'm going to talk, if I'm looking at dis consumer discretionary income, if I, if it gets contracted a little bit, the first thing I'm going to cut is my expenses to a Peloton membership, but I'm not going to not spend money on food to keep me and my family alive or my pet alive, you know? So that there, there's, there's that type of recession proof esque type of business um, uh, um, position for it. However, in an inflationary environment, which you know, I spoke about with a couple of my other Twitter friends and his faces recently was that in a high inflationary environment, supermarkets do really well because um, uh, the example that I gave, at least in the Twitter spaces, was that if I'm buying like a, a package of like $5 Chips Ahoy cookies, right? Everybody loves Chips Ahoy. Hopefully everybody loves Chips Ahoy cookies, but it's, like, it's a branded product and you're paying a premium for that branded product. But now when you slap on inflation to that, you know, that $5 box of chips ahoy it might not be five dollars anymore it might be you know six seven you know etc i don't know i'm spitballing numbers here um so the reason the way that be uh, consumers benefit from that is that while they're paying more while the supermarket themselves are paying more to acquire that um branded chips ahoy cookie they themselves because they 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 know they can they can get more margin from their own private label stuff right so then walmart will have its own like walmart chocolate chip cookie and it'll be like half the price but they actually get more of a of a percent margin on their own private label goods than they would on the branded more expensive good right it's not the margin isn't a one-to-one -one because they, they own they own that product they own supply chain of that product so now now on top of that so if you already ditched your peloton subscription model but i need to buy food now when i go into walmart and i'm, and I'm craving cookies you know, I might not spend the seven bucks for Chips Ahoy, but yeah, sure. I'll spend like the four or five bucks for the Walmart branded cookie, which I know is like not going to be as good. It's still pretty good. Um, and get that Walmart benefits. Same thing with, um, I don't know, the other like unbranded stuff there are 
um, but just like there's just so many like sugar, flour, like like anything that gets branded, you could just buy at a private label from Walmart. They get they get more of the margin, and uh, they benefit more. Same thing with like uh, I think I mentioned in my thread. I mentioned Kroger being one of them. I mentioned Albertsons being another one. I think in the last I think in the last year they're both up like fifty percent. And this is a supermarket, like literally it's a supermarket. And they're up fifty percent. Um, so I think while so many people get so caught up in like tech names and like they're inventing the future and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? Your future's down 70% and the, the freaking supermarket chain over here that, that literally sells cookies and meat and chips and stuff is up 50%. So like, you know, like open up your horizons, but, uh, that's kind of my love hate relationship with supermarkets. So do they serve a purpose? hundred percent. Can you exploit it in a high inflationary environment? Uh, yeah. And um, while it doesn't have the sex appeal, uh, it can still, as you can pull up on like on a chart on your own, uh, still deliver reseller returns if you just if you're just patient enough. Gotcha. All right. Well, that makes sense. So uh, you kind of mentioned the inflationary environment. Uh, so we'll we'll wrap it up here with one last question, or I mean, I guess a two-parter. So uh, how are you viewing this inflationary environment? Are you changing, I guess, any of your strategies when analyzing companies? And what would you give, uh, what advice would you give to any new investors getting into the market uh, now uh, during such an inflationary time? Yeah, so uh, am I first thing is, am I changing anything? So since the beginning of the year, I've definitely tried to, I tried to move. I haven't moved quick enough, unfortunately, but it's fine. Um, into more names that have earnings, earnings power. Um, so like they're actually making money because you know, unfortunately, high growth tech stocks aren't going to pay the bills, you know, when they're not, they're not making anything. They might be growing, but, like, you know, when you think about the cost of capital and like and when, the, when the rates keep rising, you're like, okay, well, simple math says that it's not going to be worth as much, you know? So um, there's that. So that's why I've like, I've shifted into names that actually have, uh, have earnings, have cash flows, like cash is going to be really important. So like, they invest it back into the business and have to like do secondary offerings or like, I'm, on um, uh, what was it unfavor with unfavorable terms, right? Because if you're doing equity offerings, you're going to do it at a, a pretty steep discount when rates are rising, right? Um, so stuff like that. I do have exposure to some tech names. So I don't want people to think I'm, I don't. Uh, it's more select. Um, so other other aspect of that is pricing power. I spoke into that in Twitter Spaces as well. So one name that you know we're invested in is. Dom, Domino's, uh, they have like a national offering of like mix and match two for five ninety nine each. Okay, that's pretty cheap. So if you think about the end consumer, if you raise it by a dollar, do you think they're going to be like, oh, you know what, I'm out? Like, no, it's a dollar, right? If you go from, well, in that case, it's five ninety nine each to six ninety nine each, so you're you're pumping it up from like twelve to what is that, like fourteen. Um, that's a lot better than like someone who already charges like 20 bucks for something. He's like, Hey, you know what? I got to raise this by like 10 or 20%. Like that's a lot, you know? Um, Cause like while the percent might be the same, the nominal, like the absolute value of it is different. So it's, it's, it's more, it's easier for me to eat a uh, dollar increase on a like $6 good than, you know, a $2 increase or even a $1 increase on a $20 good. You know, it's, it's very different. So stuff like that. Um, 
And this and the one that the piece of advice that I would give to investors, and I don't, I just don't get it. Like they just, no one understands it, and it's like really annoying. I'm like, it's common sense. Is it's very easy to get caught up in a company's story. Like they sell you on their story, and that's why you invest. You have to, and and, and this, oh, it actually pissed me off today. Um, on Twitter and on Common Stock, and not because of the not because of the platforms. I, I want to make sure that's the thing. It's not because of the platform. It's literally because of um, the people who interact on them. Like they're just, I don't know. But they always talk about like the good things about things. Like they're like, yeah, they're doing this right. They're doing that right. They're doing that right. Like okay, um, so like this is why you're long. And like yeah, like but what else? They're like what do you mean? Like what like. That those are very non-quantitative points that you're making, right? Like that's just like, like yeah, um, some companies are just doing really well. Okay, why can't they do bad anymore? Like that's one definitely one thing that I've always talked about with my other my other um, portfolio manager friends. Are just like when they used to grill me, like when we do the roundtable, they would grill me on my idea. They'd be like, why, why, why? Like why not this? Why this? Why not this? So. If you can't take whatever thesis you are, whether it's long, short, or whatever, if you can't keep poking holes into it and your idea still holds validity, then, you know, then there's, there's something wrong. Um, so you have to make sure that you, you, you look at it from a very, like, open eyes perspective because you might be wrong and just buying into the hype. And just to kind of piggyback off that for, like, 30 seconds is, like, I looked at Figs, which is a healthcare scrubs apparel company. Every, every every single person was like, this is the next Lululemon, but for healthcare. And everybody said that. Everybody only said good things about it. And then so when I started looking into it, I'm like, you know, this might be a pretty good long idea. Let me like, let me check it out. So when I did, I I went in with, I'm gonna buy it for to hold it long. And then I, I started doing my research. I'm like, wait a second, this is not. This is not what it is. This is, this is there's it's not there's, there's stuff that's not going to support the valuation. So I flipped. I actually went against it, um, and I was like, "No, I'm shorting this." And I shorted it. And I when I published my research, the amount of <laughs> angry people on Twitter were just like, "You have no idea what you're talking about. This is definitely the next Lululemon. They're growing so fast." Like. My, my nurse who has these things, like loves them, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I didn't say it was a bad product. I just said the company just isn't worth as much as you think it is. And then um, that was when it, what did I short it? $33 a share. And I think it bottomed at like 13 um, before going back up to 20. But it's like, it's one of those things where like herd mentality, right? Like you, you either think what other people are thinking without actually applying any other level of due diligence, or you go about it yourself with such tunnel vision that you're like, it has to be this. And I'm going to find any reason to support my initial thought that I'm not going to care about everything else. And then you see so many people getting burned and it's like, no, like you have time is on your side. Like take the time. Like if you miss out on a company's move price action by like 10%, but in the long term, it can still generate like 50 plus percent. I'd rather have that than take the risk now and have it drop by 40, 50% because I was like too early. I didn't, I didn't analyze things properly. Um, that's the advice I would give to people is take your time. And before you put a dollar into something, do the work, because I imagine that a lot of investors these days, like they worked worked hard for their money, right? They're not like, I'm not as a trust fund kid or something. Um, be smart about it. Don't be dumb and take your time.
Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the first things, first pieces of advice I heard. Um, I don't know if somebody told me this or I heard it on a podcast, but it was essentially just exactly like you're saying, look at a company and if you want to invest in it, try to find as many holes as you can. You got to look at it at both sides of the coin and, and weigh everything um, because, you know, if you can't poke holes into an investment or into some company because no company is perfect or anything like that, you know, they might have a really good moat or you know, great product or whatever, but there's always something that, uh, you know, there's going to be some bear out there or, or something like that. So if you can't poke a hole in it, you know, you're probably missing something and that's, you know, exactly like you're saying, that's where you're going to get burned. So. Oh yeah. I mean, the multiples thing is hilarious too, because everyone starts like talking multiples and I'm like, you're talking about the most relative valuation method and in the history of valuation methods. Like, yeah, it should be trading at 10 times. I'm like, okay, well, why not eight? Why not five? Why not two? Why not one? You know, like, like, come on, like, let's be real. You got to pressure test this stuff. So that, that one always gets me. That's, that's, a, that's a funny one to, to kind of poke. Yeah, for sure. All right, Paul. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you and what you got going on. I know you got, you know, your, you said your Twitter account and you're active on common stock. Um, but yeah, sign us off with uh, everything you got going on. Yeah, so if you want to, you can follow like my personal account on Twitter. It's just at Paul Cero, P-A-U-L-C-E-R-R-O. Um, it's the same thing on Common Stock, so you can actually see like um, other things uh, on there, like whether it's my portfolio or not. Uh, if you want to actually subscribe to uh, my newsletter, it's just type in um, Cedar Grove Capital Substack in Google, and it'll pop up. Um, again, we only focus on consumer and retail names that have like also a tech component as well as in YouTube, but it can, um, along with the cannabis industry as well. So if you're interested in that space and don't want to have just exposure to traditional like tech SaaS growth e-companies, um, I would encourage you to subscribe and see all the other content that comes out besides just single name coverage. So that's how you can find me. Yeah, for sure. So I will be subscribing to that. And Paul, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'm Brandon at Green Candle IT on Twitter. You can find my Substack at greencandleinvestments.substack.com. And uh, yeah, Paul, I'll start interacting with you a little bit on Twitter and on Common Stock. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate all your ideas. And you uh, opened up to my eyes a little bit on the fitness and dog or pet industry. So maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll be buying some of those. Um, you know, here or there. So I really appreciate it. And yeah, that's it for me. Yep. Thanks a lot, Brandon. I really appreciate you uh, setting this up. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Paul.